There was a writer and pastor. Many of you have probably read from this guy. Anybody ever heard of Francis Chan? Read Crazy Love, stuff like that? Okay, so he was at a chapel at Grand... Oh, I have to sit somewhere else because, yeah, that's right. He was at chapel at Grand Canyon University in Phoenix. And a pretty big school, pretty big chapel, considering it's like a private Christian school. And he's getting ready to speak, and they had him out on a regular basis, but he notices... While he's there, he notices this, uh, notices this girl who's sitting like third, fourth row, and she is just captivated by the worship time. I mean, captivated, and not, and not, like, um, not like super expressive. You know, there's those like super expressive people who really explore the space of around them whenever they're worshiping, like, and, and nothing wrong, but like Tim Hawkins, if you know who that is, he does a bit about like, my fish was this big and hold my baby and uh, the village people, Rocky, touchdown, that, you know, all the way, hands positions and those kinds of things. He said, you know, there were, she was a little expressive, but it wasn't that. He said the look on her face, it was just something different. Like she was captivated in a way that, I mean, he was like, man, she is really... Something special is happening with her. And he left thinking that was really cool. Well, then the next year they had him back out um, the following year for chapel again. Speaks again. Same girls there. And the same expression is happening again. I thought, man, it's happening again. Comes out a third year. Happens again. And he's like, I, I got to know. <laughs> like there's something unique taking place in this girl right now that it just... I don't, and Chance is thinking, even I don't think I've ever had this before, but three straight times, like, is it just when I'm here? Like, I, you know, what's going on? So he finds the girl after the chapel, and he said, you know, I, I just, I noticed that you were really into worship, but it's not just today, like all the other years. Could you walk me through what's taking place? Or maybe you just have a really expressive face, like, what, what's going on? And she, she smiled, she said, I get that a lot, uh, but... It's actually a lot simpler than what people might think. Uh, I, I, I am not more theologically elite or anything like that. Here's what I do. Before I go and begin worshiping God, I close my eyes and I ask God to give me an experience of him that I have never had before. And God delivers like pretty much every time. And that's it. That's all it was. And Shan was blown away by this because how many times when we walk into a, an auditorium or, or some other room or venue and, okay, we're going to have this worship and we focus in on other things. Was the song selection good? Did the praise team, band, whatever it might be, did they sound good? And did you know that, fun fact about the word worship, if you send it back to the original Greek and then translated it literally, the literal word for worship means simply worth more. That's it. So in essence, everything that we do, not just here for a fixed hour on Sunday mornings, but everything that we do throughout the week, anytime we are showing God that he is worth more to us than anyone or anything else, we are worshiping. Have you ever noticed, though, and we've talked about this a few times, that worship is super debated, like it's hotly debated about what worship should be, what it shouldn't be. And, and I get it because it's worth more. And this is our God we're talking about. Like we want to make sure we do this right. 
However, but when we look into and talk about worship and what that needs to look like, I can't help but wonder that perhaps at some point in our lives, we had a worship experience of God that was different and more and greater than anything else we've ever experienced. And I can't help but wonder if a lot of the arguments that we've had, regardless of church, denomination, I mean, every church has it, every church does. I can't help but wonder if what we're deeply trying to ultimately do is relive that one worship experience that we had that one time which is really like difficult for, for me to, when I think about in the grand scheme of who God is, right? So l- let me tell you just like a little tidbit of who I am. And, and, if, and if you didn't know, and I've talked about this a few times for people who know me. So before I went into full-time ministry, I, uh, I coached basketball at a private school here in the Houston area. And so if one of you walked up to me and every time we talked, you said, there's coach, there's coach, like, that was two years of my life. And I, and I coach my son's Little League Baseball team, if you want to count that. Uh, I don't get a paycheck from that. I should, right? So, um, but, but if you went to me and every time you saw me, you said, there's Coach, there's Coach Casey, there's Coach. I'd be sitting here thinking, I, I, don't, I don't think you know me very well. And, and if you thought about one small little detail about your life, and every time you talk to someone, that's what they bring back up again. You hit a point where you realize they don't know me very well, and I'm not sure that they care to know me very well. And I can't help but wonder if we're trying to recreate that one experience of God, and God is standing there saying, there is so much more to me in worship than this one moment that I gave you. So much more. So I, I want to to basically discuss just two or three little things about worship. I'm not going to get into nitty gritty. And here's the truth. I was telling my wife about this a day or two ago. Some of the sermons I'm doing in this series, I could spend like months talking about. And and today's one of them. We could dive into worship and we could talk about that for a while, right? But I want to talk about just real basic, real basic stuff. So first of all, I I just want to break down. I think we know the the who we're worshiping. And I think I know uh, the who and what factor. Um, and I think we, we have a decent idea of why. I'd love to discuss the when side of it. When is a worship time? We, we talk, anytime you're showing God he's worth more, that would be considered worship. It doesn't have to be song and prayer and scripture um, and, and, you know, communion, uh, sermon, that, those kinds of times. We don't have, that's not just focused on that one hour. There's so much more to it than that. But in terms of the why or even when, I want to focus in on a few times that I found fascinating in scripture when people worshiped God. Exodus chapter 33 is the first spot that I'm going to be in if you want to go there. In Exodus 33, um, it's a unique situation because at this point, the Israelites have already been liberated by, by God from Egypt. And God sends the 10 plagues, they cross the Red Sea, they get to Sinai, and then the moment happens. Because Moses and God are up on Sinai talking for so long, the Israelites say, you know what? God's left us. Moses is dead. We need a God to worship. So they build this golden calf. And they say, we're going to worship this golden calf instead. I don't know why. I wouldn't have picked a calf, but that's what they picked. So they worship the calf. God notices. God is infuriated. He's like, are you serious after everything I just did? Now, then we get to Exodus 33. Now, the Israelites have already had their immediate punishment for this. 
The people who built the calf, they're, they're executed for it. God is infuriated because commandment number one is no other gods before me. Commandment number two is don't make any idols. And the Israelites did broke both of those. It took them like no time at all. And there's this fascinating moment where Moses goes to what was called the tent of meeting. It was a tent of meeting because the tabernacle had not been set up yet. For those of you who know what that is. So how do the people of Israel encounter God? So here's what would happen. Everyone is at their tent, at their house, and there was a tent of meeting set outside the camp. And when Moses would walk toward the tent of meeting, all the people of Israel who were sitting down and watching, looking around, would all stand in reverence because above Moses, as he'd go to this tent of meeting in Exodus 33, a pillar of cloud would hover above him. And it's this incredible moment because the cloud is the presence of God And Moses is the presence of the people of Israel going into this tent of meeting. And it says that Moses would speak to God in there as if speaking to a friend. But what's amazing is they would stand and they would watch quietly, reverently, as the presence of God and Moses would head into the tent of meeting. And as Moses would go into the tent... This text says that the people of Israel would immediately begin to bow down and worship. Now, this is incredible because it's kind of an awkward situation. God says to Moses while he's in the tent, if you read the chapter, he says, I'm going to wipe out Israel. I mean, they are a stiff-necked people. They don't really want to uh, follow me. They don't really want to have me as their God. And it's, and it's Moses and God going back and forth where Moses is saying, please, God, you made him a promise. And, and yeah, yeah they, they messed up, but you are a good God. You're a gracious God. Please don't wipe them out. And so the Israelites, and again, it's a tent. It's not a soundproof room. The, the people of Israel, they might be able to hear this conversation. And so they're hearing this take place. And I can't help but point to when do we worship? Well, one situation from Exodus 3 that we can take away is we worship when it's awkward. We worship when we are encountering a God whom we know we have offended and hurt and upset. Because, well, that's a little bit of what sin is, is encountering, is moving away from the life that God has called us to and God's heart is breaking and yet we worship him knowing that he's hurting, that we have caused that hurt in some form or fashion if we have abandoned God, and yet the worship takes place anyway. In in addition to the 2 Samuel chapter 12, if you want to look there, David has committed a sin that a lot of us are aware of. So the David and Goliath moment happens, and then King David becomes king. Well, David is up in his palace, and he notices this gorgeous woman bathing on a rooftop, Long story short, they end up sleeping together, except that this woman, Bathsheba, was married. Well, Bathsheba sends words to David, I'm expecting a child, and it's yours. And David has to figure out, what do I do about this situation? So he arranges in a battle for Bathsheba's husband to fight in an area where he was guaranteed to die in battle. And that's exactly what happened. So David said, oh, I'll just marry this poor widow who's pregnant and lost, uh, and lost her husband. But then God, who sees everything, says, yeah, I I know that that is what took place. Sends a prophet to say, I am well aware of what happened. I know what you've done. The people of Israel might not, but I do. And because of that, this child that Bathsheba is carrying, this child will not survive the pregnancy. 
Now in 2 Samuel 12, it talks about how David got down on his hands and on his knees and he simply spent the entire time bowed down, face down to the ground, this entire time praying. And it was here that he probably wrote Psalm 51, a really famous psalm, a psalm of penitence, a psalm where there's worship that takes place, but David also says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. And, that, and we sing this song sometimes of create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation and renew a right spirit within me. As he's writing this, as he's saying it, praying it, a servant comes in and he says, O king, and David doesn't even look up. He simply says, is the child dead? And the servant says, Yes, my king, the child is dead. Here's what's incredible about this moment. This is unbelievable. The text says that David got up and went and approached the altar of God and worshiped. I've never lost a child before. I have held parents as they lost a child I can tell you I would rather die than lose any of my own children, like gladly, no hesitation. But to experience what David is experiencing, to lose a child, and then the first thing that he does, instead of being angry, instead of of just simply walking away and taking a break, he says, I will approach the throne of God and I will worship. But let's, let's shift a little bit. Let's get a little happier. Let's get a little depressing. So let's shift. Matthew 14. Jesus is out on a boat with his disciples. And Jesus decides to take a nap because, well, he's Jesus and he can do that. And the disciples are out. They're crossing the Sea of Galilee. And while they're there, the boat begins rocking. The waves pick up. The winds pick up. It becomes overcast. Rain starts pouring. And it's this nasty storm. And this boat wasn't super big. Jesus slept through the whole thing because he's Jesus and he's capable of doing that. I couldn't, but, you know, he can do all things. And so Jesus is asleep through all this. And finally, one of the disciples goes down and wakes up Jesus and says, don't you care that we're about to die? And Jesus looks up and thinks, oh, hey, it's raining outside. And he gets up on top of the boat, stands up amongst all the disciples, stretches his hands out and says, peace be still. And just like that, it became as calm and smooth out on that water as it is in this room right now. And the disciples look and marvel and say, you really are the son of God. And they worshiped him. We worship when it is awkward in our relationship with God. We worship when it hurts from loss, whether it be from our own, by, by something that's from our own doing or something that just simply happened. And we worship the creator of the heavens and the earth who controls the elements, who says, I am God. We worship. So if we're looking at the wind, there's this, all these seasons where worship takes place no matter what. No one is exempt from not needing to worship based off where they might be in their life and in this season where they are right now. So 
Then let's approach the, the, the hotly debated topic of how. How is God to be worshiped? I'm at a point in my life, and, and, and something that's also hotly debated is scripture in that how is, it, how is it interpreted? How is it translated? How do we read it? What parts do we emphasize more or less? Uh, does the Bible even have, uh, you know, uh, weight when, when, we, when we read what it reads, especially if we don't like what it says? And I can't help but point to there are areas of Scripture that we will look at, focus on more, and uh, some people might want to focus on less. And every tradition and every individual does this, whether you acknowledge it or not. There are areas where we will say we will acknowledge, we will not acknowledge so much as we will follow this text. As New Testament Christians, we don't attempt to follow the old law or Old Testament law. And Jesus said, I've not come to abolish those, but fulfill them. Here's where I'm at personally. While, while I regard all scripture as scripture, God breathed, inspired scripture. If there's an area of text that I want to look at and read the most literal to focus in on and be the most intentional about, like, I want to glean this in the best way that I possibly can. I am going straight to those red letters, the words of Jesus Christ. If, this is the, if Jesus is whom we worship, then I'm paying attention to his, the absolute closest. So before I go anywhere else, not to say that, that letters of Paul or Old Testament don't have weight or importance, they absolutely do. But I'm going to start with what Jesus said and then work from there. And what did Jesus say about worship? There's really only one spot where Jesus is really intentional to talk about it. And, and Mark actually preached about this story a few months ago. But Jesus is talking to a woman at a well in John chapter 4. And Jesus tells this woman in John chapter 4 that there is some, uh, he reveals to this woman some things that, sh that were true about her, but she didn't want people to know, like that she had had uh, five husbands and the man she was living with was not her husband. And uh, it gets really awkward. So this woman changes the subject as quickly as possible and talks about what is something that everybody talks about? Oh, worship. <laughs> Not much has changed in 2,000 years, right? And so he, she says, you know, you, you must be a prophet. You know, you, you Jews say that uh, worship is going to take place in, in this area, and we Samaritans are going to take place, uh, worship's going to take place on, on this mountain. Uh, what do you say? And please don't talk about my husband's or my past. And Jesus obliges this woman in this conversation in John chapter 4. And he says, woman, a time is uh, coming when it won't matter where you worship, in this city or on that mountain. But a time is coming and has come where true worshipers of God, this is Jesus saying this, true worshipers of God will worship in spirit and in truth. Because God is spirit, and therefore we must worship him in spirit and in truth. How do we worship? Where does the how take place there? Jesus, for Jesus, it's really simple. It's not old hymns versus contemporary songs, or uh, band, or acapella, or men, or women, or both, or how cool is the room, and is there smoke and strobes? No, 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 it's simple. Spirit and truth. We somehow made it a lot harder than that. But I can't help but wonder, maybe that girl that Francis Chan encountered at GCU during chapel, maybe that's what it was. For her to say, God, give me an experience of you that I've never had before. Perhaps she's saying, Spirit, come here and dwell here and now. So, 
I, I only want to tell one more story and then I'm done. Um, what might that look like? For starters, perhaps instead of wondering if we're going to like the song service or how good is the praise team going to sound, if, if we simply looked and said, God, can we just let your spirit just be here now? Can we, can we just start with that? And in our worship, the whole worship is about, compl- is about proclaiming this one truth in that we worship Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, who gave his sinless life for each and every one of us that we might one day live in eternity with him. That is the truth. That is the gospel. And so we ask the Spirit to come and say, this is the only thing that we are ultimately focused about. And there are areas that we focus on besides that. But that is the one primary truth that is mentioned and praised in the light of the Spirit. So what does that look like? I want to tell you about a prayer that's one of the simplest prayers I've ever heard. One of the most fascinating but one that I don't know that I ever prayed in my own life. There is a Romanian Catholic priest by the name of Richard Vermbrand. And Richard was uh, in, in Romania when the Soviet Union invaded Romania during World War II. They take over and they make, they proclaim that the official religion of Romania is now atheism. Vermbrand said, I cannot forsake the gospel. So he stood up in front of a large room where they proclaimed that to a bunch of religious leaders and Vermbrand said, yeah, there is a God and he sent his son Jesus to die for us so that we may live in eternity with him. And uh, well, he was arrested immediately. And every time he mentioned God, anytime he mentioned Jesus Christ, anytime he mentioned Bible, he was beaten. He openly knew that and he signed up for it. He said, it was fine. I was, I saw that as being counted worthy of suffering for the cause of Christ and people got to preach, and, and the, he actually wrote that, uh, he said, the guards really enjoyed beating me, so they got a little satisfaction out of it too. So everybody wins. I don't know that I would feel that way, but that's how they felt. But he talks about this one story, because he kept converting all the prisoners of war during this time. They kept beating him over and over. And so they said, you know what? It, it doesn't matter how much we beat him. This guy's going to continue to preach. So you know what? Let's put him in solitary confinement. He can have a cell all to himself and a room all to himself. We'll just have one guard that's right there. I'll just watch him all the time. And he thought, thank you for that guard I can now talk to. What a great thing I can do. But they didn't just stick any guard with him. They stuck a kid, like a teenager kid that they enlisted because Vernbrand wasn't hostile. He didn't try to escape. He was very compliant and very kind and loving toward the people who beat him. So he said, let's stick him with somebody who's not gonna, who we're not worried about because Vermbrand's not an escape risk. So he's sticking with a teenager. Well, Vermbrand starts talking to him and says, tell me about yourself. Tell, you know, and, and they had these conversations. After a while, the guard says, wait, you're like the nicest guy I've ever met. What did you do again? Like, who did you kill? He said, I didn't kill anybody. And he said, okay, so why are you here? And Vermbrand said, well, let me tell you about this man named Jesus Christ. And he begins telling this story. Now, I should mention, this guard grew up in the Soviet Union where there are no gods. There is no Jesus. There is no any other god. You, it was required. You don't believe in any kind of higher power. That was a rule. And so he begins telling this, how God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, sent his son into the world and every time he'd tell a, a, a parable or, or a miracle, this, this teenager who didn't know about this, he's hearing it for the first time 
And he made someone blind see. <laughs> Jesus! Oh, but he's so excited. And then he hears about the next miracle and begins jumping up and down. He is so excited. Do you realize, oh my goodness, Jesus is saving someone else. And there's someone else. And there's someone else. I'm getting way too loud, aren't I? I'm sorry. Turn me down. And, and he's being so excited. And we think we're just, well, we're going to accept our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to bow our head in reverence. No, not this guy. No, he's excited beyond belief. And Vermbrand writes in his memoirs titled Tortured for Christ, he said, I think I kind of made a mistake after that because I didn't prep him for the whole crucifixion thing. Uh, I, I didn't think about that. and I should have. But then he said, and then he talked about it. He said, but then this Jesus was betrayed by one of his own followers and he was arrested and when the guard hears that, no, 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 why, why? And Vermeer said, but then he was, after he was arrested, he was, even though he committed no sin, he was convicted anyway, and they crucified him, and he hung on that cross until he died. And the guard begins weeping bitterly in tears and just crumbles onto the ground tears streaming down his face. He looks up, he goes, what are we to do? And Vermbrand writes, you know, one of the best parts about telling the gospel story is how light breaks through the darkness. And he said, here's what it is. Here's what happened. The story's not over. Jesus gave that sinless life for us, but then after three days, he rose from the dead. And this guard, who's down here in tears, goes, really? Remember I said, yes, and if you give your life to Jesus, you can have that eternal life with him too. And this guard goes, yes! And begins dancing and running all around the cell. Are you keeping up? That's impressive. Good job, Eric. And, and they're going crazy. He is going ballistic. And here's the prayer. The very first prayer, a guy who went from atheism to believing in Jesus Christ and accepting him as Lord and Savior says, I doubt it sounded much like your first prayer because he does this. He gets down on his knees, having never prayed before, knowing little to nothing about God and goes, dear God, you are just a fine old chap. I don't know you very well and you don't know me very well, but you are just a fine old chap. And I am so grateful that you gave your life for me. I wonder how many times I have prayed and instead thought about where, what Mexican restaurant I'm going to eat at after worship. And I wonder how many times I've truly taken in the goodness of who God is. Our praise team is going to come out and we're going to continue some more in some song. And during that time, I hope this is a time when you realize that you understand that there really is a God and he really did give his son for you. And that not only do we have the opportunity to accept this sacrifice and take it on and live in eternity with God, but the grave and the tomb are now empty and therefore we will worship whether it's awkward or it hurts or we are in a season of life thinking things are good. God is present in all of those. So may we take this time to worship. Let's stand. And David, who lost this child, who felt hurt, 
also says this, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship him in gladness. Come before him with joyful song. Know that the Lord God is God and it is he who made us. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. 